a detached authority comes in and has a list of rules. And anytime those rules are broken, they make a comment. And because that for many students, that's so many, they're just scrawling all over a page. Uh, and that is actually the most intimidating for the kids who have the worst relationship with writing. Um, and so uh, instead, taking the notion of an interested reader, which is what we do in our classes every day, where you have one or two uh, things that you're focusing on and you go deep and you're human. It's not this weird English teacher shorthand. Welcome to the Teachers on Fire podcast. I'm your host, Tim Cavey, and today I want to bring you another edition of the Teachers on Fire Roundtable. These are live streamed conversations meant to warm your heart, spark your thinking, and ignite your professional practice. You can view and interact with the show live every Saturday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Central, and 11 a.m. Eastern on the Teachers on Fire channel on YouTube. Today's roundtable is titled Effective Feedback and Assessment in the English Classroom. My guests included Matthew Johnson, Marissa Thompson, Tyler Rablin, and Gina Benz. Enjoy. My name is Marissa Thompson. I'm an educator in San Diego, California. Um, I am a classroom teacher. I've been in the classroom for 15 years. This year, I got pulled over to expand our independent program to be virtual. So we went from 80 to 1,000 students this summer because of COVID, of course. Um, and that's been an adventure. But in addition to being in the classroom, I'm an innovation support coach and a consultant coach, writer, blogger, speaker, all those wonderful, wonderful things. But as we while we're talking before the show, my heart is in the classroom with the students and with the teachers. Thank you so much for coming back on the roundtable, Marissa. And I know you've got a busy day ahead of you. So thank you for joining us. Matt, over to you. Uh, yeah. So my name is Matt Johnson. I'm a high school English teacher uh, in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, it's my 13th year of teaching, which feels fitting for this year. Um, uh, and I'm also a, a writer uh, and blogger. Uh, uh, most recently, uh, I came out with the book, uh, Flash Feedback, um, and I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for joining us. And Gina, welcome here as well. Good morning. Glad to be with you. I have been teaching for 21 years in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, at South Dakota's largest high school, Roosevelt High School. We have 2,600 students. I have taught about every English class we offer in our curriculum, but right now I get to teach AP English Language, which I've taught for 18 years. And I get to teach EL students, our English learners, who mostly come from Central America. And I get to teach Teacher Pathway, which is a class for students who are thinking about becoming teachers. So essentially, I get to be a recruiter for our profession. One more thing, I was also uh, honored to be one of the 40 Milken educators in this nation back in 2015. I love the mix that we have in this room, and we're going to jump right into this topic of English assessment today. Describe your journey with English assessment. How dark did it go for you, and where do you see teachers assessing their way to burnout? Let's go back to Marissa on that one. I know, I know. I said that was my favorite question. Um, I actually was leaving education after seven years. I, I had my um, applications out and I was going to be a corporate trainer. Um, and I, I had no interest in continuing just that hamster wheel. Right. And it, it was not only never ending, it, it, it seemed to get bigger. Right. And I was trying my best. So, um, I, I did the math. I don't, ex I don't recommend doing the math, but I did the math and it comes to about 160 to 200 hours of essay grading um, every school year on top of teaching and planning and creating and supporting students and emails and meetings. So 
I puzzle piece together, I'm really, really lucky, uh, a, a method that works. And I know we'll talk about that later today, but how bad did it get? It got bad. I would, I would hire a babysitter so that I could, that I could grade. I would give up um, entire weekends. Some people would, would take entire days off or, or pay someone else to grade. I, I never got to that point, but I got to the point where I was leaving. And so we, we've got to figure out something. And I think, I think the group here, I think we've got some tips. So I'm excited to share. Thank you for being vulnerable about that. That's pretty dark. And when we're hiring other people to create more time for more marking and more grading, that is, that's not great. Matt, what did it look like for you? I know you are writing some, or reading some of your book. I know some of your story. Yeah, no, my, I mean, my story is very similar to Marissa's, uh, except for I actually left teaching. Uh, so after five years of early mornings and late nights and the weekends. And I was actually living in California at the time. I could see the beach from my house and I would always just kind of like look, I'd like lean over. And then I'd like look at the stack of papers that was in front of me. I'd be like, I guess next week. Uh, and, and after five years of that, I, I couldn't do it anymore. And I loved the classroom. Uh, I loved everything about being a teacher except for that. But I was working 60 to 70 hours. So I actually left uh, and I went and worked as a line cook for a while. Uh, and uh, then the recession and all of that, like kind of forced my hand to getting back. But I knew I was done with teaching and I was starting to put in grad school applications. Uh, and it was, you know, what was even more frustrating was I would do all this work on these papers and I would feel like nothing would really happen. Like the students would make the same have the same issues and make the same errors on the next paper. And in that, that made it kind of even worse for me. I felt like I was using all this time and it wasn't even going something. And I actually did take some days off. I, I regularly would take three, four, five days off every semester. I just kind of burned my sick days uh, to try and, you know, beat back that paper stack. And even then, uh, it generally didn't work. So I got lucky uh, in that I got back in the classroom and got some really great mentors who kind of got me on the road to getting feedback under control. Uh, but no, it, it got pretty dark. It was even a moment where I cut off part of my thumb and the line cook is, is a 28 year old line cook. So uh, yeah, it got a little dark. Wow. Okay. So you actually did leave the profession, think about uh, going in other directions, came back uh, like that part of the story. Gina, what did it look like for you? Did it ever go to a dark place for you or or what's been the, the most difficult? I don't know if it's been as dark as these two stories, but I do remember it was the winter of 2017 and winter is dark. Great, you know, great symbolism there. But I was in my dining room going through papers, going through assessment. And I could hear my husband and my two kids laughing in the living room. And I just shook my head and said, what am I doing? I should be with them. I don't have forever with my kids in my home. So when the winter break came, I was listening to my favorite podcast at the time uh, with Jennifer Gonzalez. And uh, she had Star Saxstein on and Star Saxstein does a gradeless classroom. And I was inspired. I thought maybe, maybe this is the ticket. Maybe this will help me. And at first it didn't make, it didn't lighten my workload, but it has over time and even better, it's reduced anxiety in my students and my students are more excited to take risks with their writing. So uh, it was a short, dark time. <laughs> well, you touched on something really important, and that is how do our assessment frameworks actually affect the time that we invest? I know we're going to develop that a whole lot more as we go on. Tyler, welcome here. Tell us a little bit about your context since you missed that round and, and also jump into like, have you ever been at a dark place with assessment? That's almost a no brainer when we talk to English teachers. <laughs> yeah, welcome. Um, Good morning. So I am, I, I'm an ELA teacher. I've spent my whole career as an ELA teacher. 
Um, right now, I teach one class period at a high school level. I have freshmen. Um, I love my freshmen. I get to see them every morning. And uh, then I spend the rest of my day as an instructional tech coach. And you know, my goal as an instructional tech coach is when someone comes to me asking, like, is this a possibility? My goal is to be able to say, yes, it's a possibility. And let's figure out how to make it what, you know, as good as we can for kids. So I really enjoy that role. Um, it's, it's been only about five years that I've been instructional coaching um, while, while still holding on to my one classroom. So the question about a dark time, I mean, I'm sure every English teacher has felt this at one point or another. For me, it really came down to, um, you know, I, I feel like as an English teacher, you have this balance of trying to figure out like either getting everything graded or keeping your mental health in a good spot. And my dark place really came from, uh, it was my third year of teaching. And I think I had such high expectations on myself of I'm going to grade everything and I'm going to give really good feedback on everything. And, you know, I didn't have all the tools and strategies in place. Um, and I could just physically as a result of me being so stressed and so overwhelmed, my body started like shutting down and we were talking about taking sick days for grading. I ended up taking sick days where I couldn't grade because I had so much grading to do and I was feeling sick. And so that was my third year of teaching was I, I hit a spot where, it, you know, it, it wasn't sustainable. Like fortunately it forced me to change and look for better ways, but that third year of teaching was rough and me just recognizing if I don't figure this out, like there are bigger effects than just teaching and learning. It's my, my physical and, and mental health. Absolutely. Well said. We want to say good morning to Barry, Fonz, Brian, Tim, Andrew, and others who are joining us live for the broadcast. And of course, if you're watching on the replay or listening on the podcast, thank you for joining us for this important conversation. Well, right away, you've touched on something else, Tyler, and that is as English teachers, we don't have to grade everything. Can we all agree on that? We don't have to grade everything. Students can still learn without our feedback on every piece of paper that they touch. I think we're all, that's going to be a common message here this morning. Well, I debated between going philosophical first and practical second or switching that up. I decided to get right into some of the juicy stuff, some of the practical tools and strategies first, and then we'll talk a little bit about philosophy if, if there's anything else we need to touch on on that side of things. So question three is this, what are some practical tools and strategies that actually improve student learning in the English classroom while saving teacher sanity? And Tyler, we're going to work our way back from you if that's all right. And I'd like to put up on the screen a doc that you tweeted out earlier this week. Uh, so if you could talk about that a little bit, that would be awesome. And uh, then of course, take the, the question in another direction as well, if, if you'd like to in terms of practical tools and strategies. All right. So for me, one of the biggest things I had to learn how to do and teach my students how to do is really engage in meaningful self-assessment. Um, I, I think, you know, we all know, like, it's really valuable. We know it would be awesome. But I, the first couple times I jumped into it, I learned really quickly, like, if, if I'm not spending time working with my students, teaching them how to self-assess, this becomes, it can feel just like a pointless process where we're just kind of, you know, checking boxes. Students don't really know what they're doing, but they're like, I'm supposed to circle a number. And so they circle a number. And so what I learned is I, I had to become much more intentional about uh, two things. One is providing, you know, um, like exemplars for them to be able to look at and, and use. But two, I really had to 
nail down my rubrics and think through like, how am I making rubrics that make sense for students? And so um, this rubric that's up here, it, I did, there were two major changes I made. One is the different levels of proficiency. Um, I, I'm, I was really intentional with, with structuring them with specific concepts that were meant to be attained at each level because it made it really more straightforward for students. It wasn't like I was really guilty of, of making rubrics that said, you know, uh, I, I sort of get it. I mostly get it. I really, and like, nobody knows what that means. Um, and so I had to think like if that top row up there about, you know, I want them to write varied sentences. Well, what is that? Like, what's the first thing they have to learn? What's the second thing they have to learn? And then my rubrics really turned in, into more of a progression of learning. And then the second thing that I did that has been so helpful is I link teaching resources into the rubric itself so that if a student, you know, is trying to figure out, do I know how to build compound sentences instead of just wondering, they can click on that video, look at it and go either. Yes, I know it or no, I don't know it. The other thing that I love is wherever the student ends up at or is at currently, they have a link right next to it to say, here's the next thing that I need to learn. And that's always my goal is to, to really, as much as I can shorten that or, or lessen the gap between feedback and future learning. Cause that's the whole point of feedback, right? Like I'm supposed to get feedback. So I know where I'm going, not just so I look at what makes, what mistakes did I make? You know, what, what do I need to work on? Um, so that's why the rubrics have become so essential to me. Um, and second little, little fun tip that, that I've had for, for lessening that. I don't know if anyone has ever used a text expander. Um, I have a lot of friends who work on like the coding side and the software side. And, and the idea is text expanders, there's all sorts of them, but there's, you, you have a code that you type in and it populates a pre-saved comment. Um, and I started using that because not only can I say, like we know feedback, the, the codes don't necessarily, students have a hard time understanding them, but that whole, um, being able to give a whole descriptive piece of feedback is really helpful. The problem is like we all mentioned, we all wanna have lives and we don't have time to like write paragraphs in response for each student. So by typing like three letters, I can uh, add a whole comment that says, hey, you have a comma splice here. This is what a comma splice is, link to resources about comma splices. I can even embed follow-up assessment to close the feedback loop. Um, so those are my, I guess, my two practical strategies. Think hyperlinking rubrics were huge for me. And then really thinking about how can I use a text expander or something that's going to make that feedback process faster and give me a better return on my investment of time. Good morning to Margaret from Winnipeg, Mariel, David, Jenna, Barry, and Mark Ryan tuning in from the United Arab Emirates, others in the chat as well. LinkedIn is a busy place this morning. It's great to see our LinkedIn viewers. You said so many good things, and that text expander tool is one that I've heard about so many times and I still don't use. So I'd love to hear if any of our other English teachers are using that one to save time. Thank you, Tyler, for walking us through that hyperdoc. I don't know if you call it that, but uh, a couple quick things. I know we've got so much more to get to. Teachers, use self-reflection. Make sure your students are using self-reflection. Get them involved and engaged. And you know, I think there's this old thinking that to self the students don't know. Well, sometimes they do and, and often they do in ways sometimes that we can't see. So uh, make use of that. And I also wanted to ask in your school or district, is, is that proficiency scale one that it, all of your uh, teachers are following or is that one that you've just come up with yourself, Tyler? 
Um, that's just one that I use on, on my own. And actually I had a fun conversation about language with someone the other day where he simply using the term mastery at the end of a rubric and we were rethinking, does that really reinforce the uh, growth mindset? So I'm still refining and, and revamping pretty much every day as I go. That's really interesting. Mastery sort of implies the learning is done, right? Is that sort of where you're going with that? Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Well, uh, we're off to a strong start. Gina, tell us about your tips and strategies. Again, the, the question is, what are some practical tools and strategies that improve student learning while saving teacher sanity? You know, you just talked about reflection, so I'll quickly say one of my favorite things I do is after my students complete some sort of writing project, they have to include an author's note. So a paragraph that reflects on what they did to make their writing powerful, interesting, insightful, and a little bit about their writing process too. That helps me know how I can meet their unique needs. That's the conversation the students and I have throughout the whole school year because my mindset is I am their mentor. I am not their judge. I am not an accountant. I am their mentor. So with that mindset, I have moved to more of a writer's workshop mentality, like Nancy Atwell said way back in the day. And I love to give my students time to write in class. And I pop from desk to desk to desk. I am not sitting at my desk checking emails. I am mentoring them. I'm seeing what they're doing. And if I am at my desk, it's because they've shared a document with me and I'm looking at it. We use uh, Google Docs, Chrome. We're on the, we have Chromebooks. So they upload their stuff to Google Classroom. I can check on it anytime. And then I have those pre-saved comments like we just mentioned, with links to more learning so that it can constantly individualize for each student. And they really like that. Now, with regard to rubrics, I actually did away with rubrics. They seem to take way too much time for me and they weren't individualized enough, I guess. And I didn't like reducing things to points. So now I write a note to the students instead, just a real natural note to keep that conversation going and to tell them what they're doing really well, but also what they can do going forward. That is such a smart idea. I love, I, I'm already going to be taking notes as I re-listen to this. So you're uh, you're not only creating these canned comments and, and feedback notes, but you're also within that generating some URLs that students can click on and go to sort of a mini lesson. Matt, over to you. I know you've got a book full of them. What are some uh, practical tips and strategies that you could share with English teachers? So, I mean, uh, what people have been talking about already are, that's a huge amount, like having students self-assess so often teacher quote feedback is really just justifying their assessments um, and that's not a great use of time. Having feedback and assessment together means that the feedback is going to get less focus uh, and it also you're passing up on an opportunity to help them move forward and just spending time just justifying instead. Plus it's metacognitive and reflective, right? It's a win-win win a bunch of times over. Uh, so I'm a huge fan of student self-affection. Gina, I do something very similar. I also have them annotate their writing, like similar to how the New York Times does their uh, annotation. Uh, they have like the authors annotate. Uh, and I find that they have to like go and annotate specific moves that they made, which is a lot of fun actually. Um, uh, and that, you know, like Tyler, like yours, that takes some training, but it's a lot of fun. Uh, definitely not <laughs> reading uh, and grading everything or giving feedback to everything. Uh, somebody mentioned Kelly Gallagher, and that's where I first came across that idea of like, look, students need time where they practice away from the teacher's eyes. Uh, there's no nothing else that I can think of where we feel like 
whether it's like basketball or piano, where like a coach has to watch every shot a player takes uh, or every note that a, a, p- a pianist like hits. Like what we do is we give them some feedback. They go and practice it themselves. They come back and we get the cycle going of that. Um, and that's really important. So it's not just a time saver, but it's actually better practice. A couple of things I might add. Uh, one of them is taking the stance of what I call an interested reader as opposed to a detached authority when we give feedback, which is the notion that a detached authority comes in and has a list of rules. And anytime those rules are broken, they make a comment because that for many students, that's so many, they're just scrawling all over a page. Uh, and that is actually the most intimidating for the kids who have the worst relationship with writing. Um, And so uh, instead taking the notion of an interested reader, which is what we do in our classes every day, where you have one or two uh, things that you're focusing on and you go deep and you're human. It's not this weird English teacher shorthand. Uh, And then you, I have my students do a feedback cycle where whenever they, whatever feedback they get from me, they have, they can, they can push back against it. We conference over it, uh, but they have to revisit it multiple times and it becomes a part of their, their final assessment. And actually, we were talking about rubrics. I kind of go in the middle. I found that rubrics were limiting for some kids, but really helpful for others. So my rubric is a combination of standards that I have to hit for my school, but they also have their own goals. And then there's also the feedback that they get from their classmates and from me. And they actually recreate our own rubric as we're going through the unit to do that. Um, the other thing I would add is that feedback shouldn't just be a big paper situation. Uh, it should be like something that we're doing uh, on like a regular basis. Um, so with like smaller things, and I call these, this, these are called flash feedback, which is the name of my book. Uh, and it's named after these. And, and I'll give you an example. We've been doing a, a unit on emphasis fairly recently. Where we're talking about like the writer's tools for adding emphasis, whether it's in a positive or a colon or italicizing something or creating its own new paragraph with just like one sentence. And we talked about all these tools. And then what they did is they wrote a one page rant on whatever they wanted. And I was like, it's a rant. You got to emphasize something. So then they had five moments of emphasis and they annotated like where they had them and how, why, how they use them. And I can look at that and they've already pointed out the spots. Uh, and I can read that and then, uh, you know, like I can open up their doc. I see exactly where they go. I can just kind of go, yep, yep, yep. Well, not sure about that one. And then I can like be like, toss it back to them. Like you got four out of the five. And what I, it's kind of a gradeless assignment because until they're, uh, until they kind of get five out of five, they're actually not even going to get a grade in my grade book. So everybody's getting a hundred percent on that. Uh, and so, uh, but it's like a, it's, it's this idea and I can do that in 30 seconds. So I can do that. I can have my kids write that at the beginning of class. We'll do choice reading for 25 minutes. And then they have that feedback waiting for them, uh, when they finish you know, that. And then they have time to actually make changes if they need it, or they can just extend their choice reading if there's nothing to work on. And that means I'm not going home with anything, but it's also meaning that every single week, which this year more than ever has been essential because we're rem- been remote most of the year. Uh, it's it's forming that, that bridge of connection time after time. Uh, and I see more growth in that than I did in an entire year's worth of me like putting colons into their work or circling something. Um, so, yeah. Matt, you use Google Classroom, it looks like, and, and mm-hmm. Gina mentioned Chromebooks as well. Talk a little bit about this. You mentioned the annotated work by students. I thought this post was so cool over on MatthewMJohnson.com. Tell us what's going on here. Yeah, I mean, so this is actually that assignment I, w- I was talking about. So I was writing on it this week. So it was kind of at the, the front of my mind. But this is, you know, so the student here uh, was... I, I was like, rant about whatever you want. And she wanted to rant about cathedrals and the light in them, which was so cool. And then, uh, and then, but then they had to annotate. So you can kind of see there that they have like 
you know, so she's like, you know, I use this, a purposeful sentence fragment right here. I use dashes right here. I use another dash. I have another sentence fragment. So she really went in deep on those. And when we conferenced over it, I was like, that's really cool that you have each of those. I was like, do you think there's such a thing as too many sentence fragments? And it gives us like a nice little mini conference that again is, you know, not long, like 30 seconds. And I call these micro conferences because the students done all the thinking. So I'm just responding to that. And that's a lot faster than me trying to like, you know, kind of figure something out while we're sitting there and doing that. It allows for very quick conferences. Um, and it's a lot of fun, you know, and, and it also empowers them because they're making a choice as an author and I'm honoring that uh, and celebrating that. I love that you give a little bit of latitude for your young writers to break the rules intentionally, right? And thoughtfully yeah. and, and for effect. And that's much different than, uh, you know, lacking the skills and knowledge to write properly. Wow, I'm trying to keep up with everything going on here and everything I'm hearing. Marissa, what about you? What are some tools and strategies? I know one of them for sure. Uh, talk to us about how we can save our sanity and improve student outcomes. Well, first of all, I could be in this conversation all day and be like, oh, Matt, can you show me that? Like, can you just, we'll just hang on and we'll, you know, and have this, this unconference afterwards, you know? Um, so I, I do use a text extender. I put it into, into our chat. I know it's not, it's not there right now for everybody, but of course everyone's welcome to have it. Um, and I have a little system there that, that really makes it possible for me to have those conferences too, Matt. Um, so I'm, when I was looking at all these ideas, I've got, coming from, you know, Jennifer Gonzalez and Catlin Tucker. And I couldn't make it work because of the number of students that I had in my class. I had 40 students in my class and I wanted to conference with them and I couldn't figure it out. And the key was uh, pro keys, a text extender, but I have it organized in such a way that makes sense for my brain. Um, so I was able to um, find a way to go from those 200 hours of essay grading to zero um, and I pass that along to my students as well. Yeah, there it is. So um, for everything, and it's it's set up in an order that I would normally read. So it starts with introductions and then it goes to thesis statements. But I have my text extender. I1 is the green. You're doing an excellent job. I2, it's usually that common error that people get tripped up on. I3 Hi, we learned about introductions. So like you need to, you need to do that, you know? Um, but everybody of course is welcome to those. I've removed my videos and supports from them um, just so that teachers can use whatever materials they use in their class. But that works for me and it makes it possible for me to meet with 40 students in a block period. Um, and they take that information and they apply it right, you know, immediately. So that when I say I pass off that, that same benefit to myself of not taking it home, it goes for them too. So I'm seeing the same thing Gina's seeing of like, their writing is definitely better. I mean, definitely better. And they're saying it's because they're sitting in class. They're not doing it at 11 o'clock and just like, I've got to turn something in, you know? So they're actually sitting with it, looking at the materials, like, like Tyler said, and, and applying it to the next thing. And I'm pointsless as well. I'm gradeless as well. So it's very simple to go, look, you have this skill down. I need you to focus on this one, right? So go over there, go do it, go, go, you know, you got it. And I'll see you at next class. No problem. Um, but I know what you're going to say. So I, I like to teach writing without sneak. I like to sneak it in. Right. So I use TQE. We do a ton of practice of discussion. Um, and I try and get the students to get used to depth of thought 
then I move them from these reading discussions to go, okay, I'm tricking you into writing a paragraph verbally. You don't know it, but that's what's happening. Um, and then I label it. So I don't say, okay, we're going to do a thesis statement. Let's do a topic sentence. Let's do it. Just let's, let's talk about it. They'll make a claim. They're like, is that really happening in the book though? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, when? They're like, oh, the part where, you know, and it's like, okay, but how does that even prove like the, that you, you said that blah, 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 blah. Oh. And they all go off and it's like, great, thank you. This here, that's your claim. That's a topic sentence, all right? Then you gave me that evidence, which I appreciate. And then you had to walk me through that analysis to really prove it. That's a body paragraph. And you'll see kids go, ah. Oh. I do like the instant grading. So um, I've been able to manipulate a, a spreadsheet so that it gives instant feedback in their writing. So I use conditional formatting for that. Um, so that, it, you know, they're writing their, their work, uh, they're writing, practicing specificity, it grades automatically. I don't, I don't have to do it. Um, and they get the feedback immediately and can revise immediately. I like that too, but TQE really made a big difference. I also really prefer to teach writing separately from reading. A lot of times our students, you know, maybe they don't, finish the reading. They didn't understand the reading. They're still working on reading comprehension. They are for me, separate skill sets that I need to, to have them be successful at. So I have students work with and practice writing with art first. Um, so we talk about, we, we analyze art, we write about art and the deliberate choices that an artist makes. Um, and then I get them all hyped up uh, for a rant. Um, and I throw out something I know will get their, you know, blood boiling a little bit and they explain their side there. And then I move into um, Bradbury. I love the story of the pedestrian. Why did they use that? Why did he do that? What is he trying to prove, right? Then I continue to move into to literary analysis, but the writing doesn't have, the writing instruction and the writing doesn't have to focus on the reading. And I think that that's something that is traditional um, and is expected, but is really tripping us up. Hmm. Yes, uh, I'm a big fan of reading for the joy of reading, trying to get some no strings reading into, and I'm in a middle school context, so maybe a little bit different in that respect, but I think we've got to find better ways of doing that with the writing side as well. Just before we move on, are all of you, how many of you, let's just see by a show of hands, how many of you operate out of, when you are in the English classroom, operate from Google Classroom? Can I see the show of hands there? All right, so all of us. So I love the magic of real-time coaching, being able to pop in when you when you push out that doc to every student. Uh, that is a game changer as far as I'm concerned in terms of coaching. I don't always have time to get through every student in the class during one period, but that's usually my goal is to try to pop in and, and give some feedback. But there's nothing like that real-time value in my mind. Let's keep this going on to question four. So again, we may have gone about this in a bit of a backwards order, but as you think about the philosophy of instruction and feedback, what else would you add here? Uh, we started off by saying we don't have to grade everything. So that's uh, that's a, one of those philosophical paradigm shifters. Tyler, what else would you add in terms of philosophy and how teachers need to think about feedback and assessment in an English classroom? The biggest thing for me is assessment is not an isolated event. Like it, it's, and I mean that in two ways, in terms of time, but also in terms of relationships. I think that's why 
so often we feel so burned out as English teachers is like sitting by yourself at your kitchen table, trying to grade a bunch of essays. There are no kids around, which like that's what gives us the energy, right? That's the difficult part. We don't have kids there. We're just grading. Um, I have found that my big philosophy shift is assessments of conversation, right? And, and it's weird if it's just you and you're having a conversation by yourself. So um, I really do my best to make sure that when I'm grading, when I'm assessing, when I'm providing feedback, somehow it's it's a relational event where there is the student is there with me. You know, it, right now it's through video mostly that we have to interact, but um, it, it can't just be isolated to the teacher. And it's something that the student just gets. They have to be involved in that process. But I also think in terms of time, it can't be isolated. I think that's why so so often as English teachers, we put feedback on a piece of writing only to see the same thing happen again because it's an isolated event. The student's like, well, that was my result for that piece. Let's see what happens on the next piece, right? It's not, it's like task focused as opposed to, well, this is what they told me to, you know, this is something for me to focus on. I'm going to bring that to the next piece. I have a way of tracking it. So the, the, it just, the lack of isolation in, in how I give feedback and, and how I assess students um, it has been a huge shift for me that's been really helpful in, in terms of improving learning, but also just in terms of my overall wellness and happiness when I'm, when I'm engaged in that assessment process. It's so true. And as Jenna says here on LinkedIn, thanks for joining us, Jenna. She says, not just teachers, school admin and boards need to hear and use this too. So even when you think of professional feedback, right, between an observation and the report or they, you know, that that follow up meeting, if that meeting or that report comes out two months after the fact, it's not as valuable. It's not as as real time. And so we want to try to connect it. I mean, here's a mind blowing thought for English teachers. You talk about sitting at your kitchen table grading. A few of you have mentioned that. What if that one comment that happens in class is actually more impactful than the 20 minutes of written feedback that we we pass back on an essay, right? That's that's very tragic when you think of all the hours we've spent, most of us uh, sitting at our kitchen tables. But yeah, I think as closely as we can connect it to real time, the better. Gina, anything to add here in terms of the philosophy of assessment and feedback? How do teachers need to be thinking about this? Yeah, I think I have three things to say. Uh, first of all, my number one philosophy is that learning is fun. Learning should be fun and school should be fun. So everything I do, I ask myself self that question, is this fun for the students? So even with an assessment, here's the question I ask myself, does this assessment inspire curiosity, joy, and hope? It's been a game changer. Uh, secondly, homework. Homework favors the privileged, so I don't give homework. And that makes it, the learning more fun. It takes some anxiety away. It gives students that safety that their mentor is there with them when they are learning and practicing. So uh, uh, you know, there is some homework that naturally happens, but not a lot and definitely nothing that uh, would be too difficult. And then uh, third, oh, actually four. Uh, if I have to give a grade, it's never permanent. Uh, students can always grow and learn, and those things can change. Nothing in the grade book would be permanent for me. And then lastly, feedback can happen in a lot of ways. And one of the most important ways feedback happens is the students giving me feedback. So at the end of a unit, sit down conversation time. What worked well with this unit? What should I keep doing? What should I stop doing? What could I change? Um, the students deserve that. 
Gina, that was incredible. Some mic drop moments there for sure. I, I want to say the, yeah, the, the end of unit reflection, I don't do enough of. So thank you for that reminder for me. Sometimes I think there's a fear of uh, getting students to over reflect, or at least that that plays out in my mind, but I'm, I'm so far away from that. <laughs> I can't use that excuse at all. Um, and then could you give us the, the three things, everything you do should inspire curiosity, joy, and hope. Do I have that right? Yeah. I, wow. That's fantastic. Matt, what else would you add? Again, you've written a book about it, but what would you say in terms of just the philosophy and how we think about assessment in the classroom? So I think a lot of the folks here hit a bunch of the biggies, right? Feedback should be a two-way street. Traditional, it's like teacher to student, but having that be a two-way street and a conversation that's ongoing. Uh, that it should be, I, I like this idea of like curiosity and hope because that's what drives student motivation. If students think that there's value in something and they can succeed, they're gonna invest in it. And if they don't have one of those two boxes, they probably aren't. Um, the idea of having the feedback and the time be, con you know, like have it come shortly after you do something is incredibly important. There's a lot of data and research that shows that the longer feedback waits, the less impactful it is. Uh, that, you know, this idea of grades not and assessment not being permanent, I have to put grades in via my contract, but that's my kind of one of my like loopholes is I'm like, we're going to have a conversation. Uh, Sarah Zorwin talks about this in her book, Pointless, uh, at the end of the quarter and at the end of the semester to, uh, to talk about your grades and talk about whether they're accurate or whether we should look at changing them. Um, so all of those I think are great. Uh, a few others I would add. Feedback and assessment should be separated. I already kind of said that, but I think it warrants like we, you know, saying again, because when they're together, the feedback loses. Uh, feedback is about how can we move a student forward? Uh, and assessment is a rating of where they're at right now. So they are sort of fundamentally at odds with each other. Um, the students need to do the work, not us. I used to always, when I was in my, my first years, make all the changes. I never do that. I don't touch a student paper. I don't make changes in the, in the margins. I don't put colons in. I don't, you know, fix it for them. That's not my role. Um, and I think that it, we often fall into this role that we are editors as opposed to, to teachers. Uh, and so, you know, remembering that you're a teacher. So if a student with one of our big focal points on this paper, and I always just have a few focal points and I let everything go until the next paper. Uh, that's maybe another thing. It's just not trying to con not trying to fix everything in one go. Um, but if this student really needs to work on, uh, let's say, comma splices, then what I'll do is I'll circle one. I'll have a hyperlink. Uh, I love the, the people are doing that here too, to like, an, you know, to where our information on on comma splices and what they are. Uh, and then I'll like circle like two of them. I'll say, okay, there are 10 others on this page. Your job is to go and do the work and fix that. It's not my job. And that saves time. Uh, and it's also uh, more effective for learning because they're not just sort of like blindly doing what I, you know, making the change I said and then making the same mistake. Because if whoever is doing it is going to be the one learning it. Uh, and so, uh, and I think that's kind of, those are kind of like the big ones right there. Um, uh, the only other thing I would add, and this has already been said a lot of other times, but just every step of the way with both feedback and assessment that they're equals, they can push back against my feedback and be like, I don't necessarily agree with that. I give them a question to prompt them in that. Uh, they can, uh, they, they set their own goals. They can ask me what, what I, I, before I give them feedback, I say, what do you want me to look for? And they get that, that the, the opportunity to ask for things. Uh, they self-assess first, right? They reflect, uh, and then I read their reflections and I respond to them. So I'm always, I'm always in this, uh, the position of responding when it comes to feedback and assessment as opposed to leading, which I think is really important. Uh, I saw somewhere this notion that like two out of three conversations in any given classroom are usually, it's like teacher, student, teacher. So teachers are talking two thirds of the time. So I like flipping that on its head uh, and having it be student, teacher, student, and then you know, we can go from there. 
So good. Matt, you talked about not making those corrections for students, but again, we're all in that Google Classroom, Google Doc environment. When you're in suggesting mode, do you ever suggest, like sort of make those edits, but students have to accept them in order to bring them in or no, you don't? They have to, they have to understand that I responded to their writing in a certain way, in the same way that they have to do that with their peers. But no one is required to make any change that I, I, I put on there, but you have to understand that this is how I responded to it. I'm one of your readers. Uh, and so, uh, and I often try and take this uh, a notion of describe, evaluate success, which is basically, I think it came out of Michigan State, which is like when it comes to feedback, it's the most effective when we start with a, a more neutral description and then we move to evaluation and success. Uh, and so I, I often kind of take that too. I'll be like, I noticed that there is, you know, that you have a lot of comma splices. Like, let's talk, remember we talked about those, let's talk about those and here's your route to success, which is there's 10 on the page. Uh, and so let's have you see what you can do with those. Yeah. Just by a show of hands, how many actually track um, student or feedback that you've given to students about their writing all in one Google Doc designated for that student? Do you do that? Yeah. Um, I've only started doing that in the last couple of years. I mean, obviously you're giving feedback in all these different little places, but I like to be able to follow along in, let's say, a journal of that student's writing and be able to see, oh, three months ago, I was still telling you to capitalize your eyes and you're still doing that or whatever it might be, right? So, um, so hopefully there's some progression and growth over time. That longitudinal tracker, I think, is really, really helpful, especially when you get into student-led conferences and portfolios and things like that. Marissa, what else would you add on this theme of philosophy? I think, I think, of course, we've hit on so many different topics, right? And I'm sitting here, like, you know, giving hallelujahs and the whole thing. But um, I think for me, what I what I noticed for myself was that it, it doesn't have to be turned in. That this is something that can be done in the moment, and this is hard, right? Because a lot of us are still virtual. But you know, in the classroom, we spent tons of time. Um, drilling essay outlines. So instead of, okay, you have to write an essay, I tell my students, look, you have the ideas. We just need organization and clarity, you know? So, so let's practice organization, just organization. I, I made these um, rolling double-sided whiteboards, you know, out of, out of uh, garment racks and, and shower board. And so I have three double-sided ones. I've got groups on each side and we practice outlining. And at first, it takes 15 minutes for them to figure out what, here's all my thinking, here's my thesis, here are my body paragraph topics, um, here are the, the perfect evidence that I would hope to find, right? Make it up, I don't care. Especially if it's, it's just practice. So that way it's no risk, it's not gonna affect your grade, right? And then I go around and if I hear someone going, wait, I don't think that's supposed to be, you know, whatever, I'm right there. Let's talk about it. But we get down to the point where they they go from 15 minutes with a group to plan an essay to they can plan an essay in five minutes. Um, part of that is because I don't give prompts. I, I haven't given an essay prompt in I don't even, seven or eight years. And, and part of that is because I went to this this uh, training where people said the the college professor said they can't write unless they have an actual question. And, and they were frustrated by that. Like, you just read all this stuff. We just studied for you know two months about this particular topic. You have nothing to say. And the students would freeze and go, I, I don't know what to do. You didn't give me a question. So um, 
I, that honestly is, is saving some of my sanity too, because I get to read a variety of topics um, and I get to discover things the way that the students do. So that would be something that I would say I, the board meetings to practice um, outlining that has a direct impact because the, I found that the key to, to really helping a lot of my students with their writing problems was in the topic sentence. They couldn't figure out topic sentences. So um I'm actually doing a, my, not my presentation today. My presentation today is the text extender, um, how that saved me as an English teacher, but also can be used for elementary school teachers and, and resource teachers, admin. Um, so that's today. But next month, I'm at Spring Q and doing, here's all of my writing philosophy and strategies. So that's super fun. But yeah, no prompts, board meetings. You know, the other thing I do, because I do track their their successes and, and struggles. Mine was always comma splicing. That's why I started cracking up when I, when you said that, Matt, but, um, at the end of the year for, for extra credit, which is silly cause I don't give points. Um, I have, I give the option of having students write an essay about their writing improvements. Cause I think so often students will say, I'm not good at writing or I didn't really learn much about writing. And I sit there and go like, are you freaking kidding me? You know, so they have to, you know, give a thesis about they've improved this year and three different paragraphs, four different paragraphs about the skills. They even quote themselves to show the error originally and then uh, how it's improved and why that's better for their writing. Uh, that's a, that's a cool thing because I think at the end, it's really nice to know at the end of the year that you're doing great. And, and that doesn't happen a lot with writing. Usually we're focusing on what's wrong with your writing. So, um, you know, just that encouragement is also great for them and, and great for my teacher spirit too. Yeah, I, I try to give stars and wishes. So I use the star emoji and the, 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 the praying emoji, like, please start doing this. <laughs> uh, but always mixing in that, that positive when possible. There's a good conversation going on on LinkedIn between Margaret and Muriel talking about student exemplars. I think one of you mentioned that. How do you keep your best exemplars of student work? Just this year, I've started sort of a, a perpetual Google Slides that I keep up in another tab when I'm looking at student writing and I try to grab screenshots and uh, continually add to that and, and say, here are some great examples. How are there some better ways? What else can I be doing? Uh, yeah, throw your hand up and, and jump in here. Um, Sorry, okay, I'm Marissa, just too excited Marissa's about it. Marissa's very excited, Marissa. Yeah, Marissa, go for it. <laughs> like people, everybody ready. Okay, so um, Tyler, right, the text extender, my little code is EX, for example, and it says, this section is great. Can I please have it as an example to share with other students so they can see? And then there's a Google form that says, what's your name? What section, what is this thing? And so it's introduction or topic sentence or embedded quote or whatever. And then please copy paste the section here. So now I have this massive spreadsheet that's totally organized by introductions, embedded quotes, you know, conclusions, everything without my having to organize it, right? Without my having to really seek it out. It's in the moment, EX, and and then I've got this collection. So if a student goes, I, I'm really struggling with conclusions, be like, hey man, no problem. I have like 15 right here for you, you know? I, I I like your formal process. I just I just grab the screenshot and uh, add it to it. I just throw it in there, but I hope I'm not violating. I, I mean, I keep them anonymous, so, and they're all positive, generally speaking, but... 
Um, I, I like your categorization system. Matt, you had something to add there too. How do you save up exemplars? So I, I do what the, the Moving Writers blog has, which is like this like uh, Google folder that has like all these various like genres and stuff like that. I keep those for my own students too. I love theirs. Theirs is wonderful. It's a great resource. Um, uh, and it's just like, they're called the Mentor Text Dropbox. And I have you know, theirs, but I also have my own. Uh, and I put professional and student exemplars in it. Uh, and it, over the years, built up quite a, a war chest of them, which is great. Uh, and just this year, because we've been on, we've been remote and there's not these moments of celebration. And I love that we were talking about celebration in the class. Uh, I've started this thing that I think I'm going to continue, uh, which is where every single day I take student work from the previous class. I always ask the students, and I'm like, this is going to be anonymous. And then I have like a shout out for it where I'm like, this was an awesome move right here. Uh, and we do it every single day. It's kind of just one of those ways to build connection while we're all apart. Um, but I love it. I really like it. And I have a checklist where I make sure that I, every kid gets this, you know, the same number of times. So I actually have a running checklist and I'm always kind of looking. Uh, and that's been a blast. Uh, and it's been, it's actually been really good at like this idea of coming back to key lessons and just hitting them another time and getting that spacing uh, and that revisiting that's so important for learning. So it's actually been kind of, I think, like great from a, a class community uh, point of view and a, a learning point of view and just hitting that information one more time. We are running short on time, which makes me very sad. So I had another question about the joy of writing and how you incorporate that, but I want to give a quick opportunity and we, we do have to keep this very, very short. So try to keep it to maybe two voices and influences. I know you, I mean, you, you've got anthologies full of, of them, but who are your two, let's keep it to two go-to people who you really learn from and who inspire your practice. Tyler, let's start with you. Oh, oh man, two. Uh, let me whittle down my list of a million. Um, <laughs> I, I would say Recently, Cornelius Minor wrote, a, uh, he's done, he's written a couple pieces or given a couple interviews around um, how racism and bias can be inherently built into grading practices. And, and I think, you know, that is such an important conversation to have. Grading can be such an oppressive, harmful thing if it's done poorly. And so I, I have been anything that he puts out and, and I, I actually don't even think he's an English teacher now that I think about it. I might be wrong, but I'm it totally applies and is very relevant. The other person I learned from a ton and I have never interacted with him in person or heard him say his name. So I'm going to feel terrible if I'm saying it wrong. But uh, Nicholas Emmanuel is someone that I interact with a ton. Um, and, and I learned so much from him in terms of like, I am not completely gradeless. It's my goal. It's what I'm moving towards. And he does a really good job. He'll write out, you know, here's the thinking, here's the changing I'm doing. Here's what I'm learning. Um, and, and getting kind of inside someone's head that well as they're going through this process has been really valuable for me. Gina. Um, the Teachers Going Gradeless Network, uh, especially Aaron Blackwelder there has been quite a mentor to me. And the second one, my own students. They teach me every day. Matt. Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you guys actually kind of said what they're adding. So Cornelius Minor has been doing great stuff with feedback and assessment. Um, we got this help me like understand, kind of get my head in the right place as that teacher. Uh, so I love that. Aaron Blackwell, they're awesome. Nicholas Emanuel, like also awesome. Uh, a couple I, I would throw on top of that, because uh, I kind of came to the ungrading thing late. Like I was 
so focused on feedback, which is weirdly separate in like the the literature. Uh, the, it, it was a moment when I was like, my book was almost like done, and I, I you know, and I was like, I want to put in a whole chapter on like ungrading, and they're like, it's at the print right now. I'm like, okay, and it's been a cool like, it's actually been cool because it's been like a bridge for a lot of people to go over there, as it was for me. Um, uh, but I would also add uh, Sarah Zerwin uh, has been like a, a really has really awesome. Her paper graders blog kind of got me on that, started on that, uh, and then Asau in a way really pushes me. Uh, I think he's I want to say he's at Arizona State. But he did the the he does the he's been writing a lot about labor based grading, uh, and he he gave the AP keynote this summer, and I think he's he's really interesting too. So he's really helped me a lot. Fantastic, and so many of you, you're all doing amazing stuff too. So we're going to close with that. But Marissa, who are, are the one or two people out there that are really inspiring your practice? Catlin Tucker's um, stations really helped me. Um, I had to, I had to make some changes for for my own workload, but um, Catlin Tucker and Jennifer Gonzalez with the single point rubric was really helpful. Of course, all the gradeless people that you guys are talking about. But um, I'm learning a lot by working with teachers to where my little system that's working for me isn't working for them. And so working with them to develop their own, I'm learning a ton by working with those teachers. So it's always reciprocal. I freaking love it. It's amazing. <laughs> that's quotable right there. I want to say hi to my friend Julia, who's joining us for the broadcast. That's awesome. Good to see you, Julia. We're signing off. Uh, let us know how we can connect with you. Tell us about the work you're most proud of. I, I know we've got some authors, we've got some publishers, some, some bloggers in the mix. So Marissa, I'll turn it back to you. Again, as we said at the top, you're presenting again today. Where can we find you and where else would you like people to go? So I've got my website, unlimitedteacher.com, um, and then I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Um, I present often. Yeah, I'm this today I'm at the CTA conference, and next month I'm at Spring Q, which is a great conference. A lot of the people that we were talking about today will be keynoting, so that's super fun. Um, but yeah, I'm, what am I most proud of? Um, it's not what we're talking about today, but yeah, I am really proud of, of um how the teachers take an idea and run with it and improve it. So yeah, the TQE is, is definitely being able to see the pictures come in from around the world and, you know, kindergarten to grad school. It's, it's crazy. It's, it was just an idea I had and everyone has taken it and made it better. And that's so fun. Thank you, Marissa. So good to have you here. Matt, your book touched my English teacher's heart in the opening pages. I knew we were uh, we had some shared stories for sure. Tell us how we can connect with you and and, and the work that you're doing. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I've got the book right here. Uh, flash feedback, uh, responding to student writers, you know, better and faster without burning out, which has been awesome. Uh, I also uh, started uh, kind of as a blogger. So and I still try and blog. It's been harder this year than a lot of others, but it's at MatthewMJohnson.com. Uh, and same thing, Twitter. I, I really love, uh, you know, edgy Twitter, uh, though I haven't been as good this year because it's just been such an overwhelming year as a lot of other years. Um, so those are kind of, you know, probably the, the, the main places to to connect with me. Um, uh, and then I mean, the one thing I think the one thing I'm proud of is I really want to make I'm grading papers a, a phrase that no one ever says again, uh, because your response. So I like seriously, like I, I don't ever want people saying I, I want you're, you're, you're responding to them. You're giving feedback. You're collaborating with them. I want those to become new. And, and I feel like a lot of people have said that to me uh, who have read the book or, you know, uh, read the blog. So uh, that, that that's the one that always touches my heart. Wow. The the phrase you just put out there, I think English teachers everywhere are applauding, Matt. So thank you for that. Gina, how can we connect with you? And what are you putting out there that you'd like to draw people's attention to? 
Yeah, you've got it there in my uh, screen. Uh, I'm on Twitter at GinaBen605. 605 is the only area code in South Dakota. So, And uh, I have my website, GinaBenz.org, where you can find a lot of my writing. I uh, do blog on there. And I've also been uh, writing for the Milken Educator Network a little bit, too. I think one of my favorite articles was for Teachers Going Gradeless. That was about, uh, the title was, the Gradeless Classroom, A Liberation from Anxiety. Well, that's a nice fit with our conversation today. Thank you so much for joining us, Gina. And I will make sure to include all of this in the blog post that comes out to uh, partner with this conversation. Tyler, what are you putting out there and how can we connect with you? Uh, Twitter is my favorite place to connect with people right now. So I would love to connect there. Uh, most of my writing I do, my blog is called Teacher Totter, which is really the idea is that there's a lot of ups and downs in teaching. Um, and, and I would say, you know, when you say, what am I proudest that I'm putting out there? Um, it, it really is the extent of time that I've continued blogging. It's, it's horrifying at times for me to be able to go back and see, you know, some of the things that I thought early on in my career, but, um, it's, it's. I think it's important that we're all sharing our journey in some way, shape or form. Um, and, you know, I love being able to tell my kids like there's power in writing and I use it all the time because it helps me learn and grow. So um, if you also a little plug for NCCE, if you're if you want to go to a great uh, tech conference, NCCE is coming up and I'll get to do a few presentations. there. My name is Tim Cavey, and I'm proud to contribute to the education conversation through the Teachers on Fire podcast. If you enjoyed this roundtable episode, make sure to subscribe to the Teachers on Fire channel on YouTube, where you can interact with me and my guests live every Saturday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Central, and 11 a.m. Eastern. And if you haven't yet, make sure to connect with me at Teachers on Fire on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Voxer, and Clubhouse to catch more from me and hear from amazing educators who are bringing growth and transformation to K-12 education today. When you listen to this content and share your support on social media, you pour fuel on my fire and inspire me to continue this important work of amplifying voices and sharing ideas. Thanks again for listening to this roundtable episode in these challenging times. Take care, share an encouraging message to lift up a colleague, and keep that fire for learning burning bright.